In Revelation chapters 2 and 3, Jesus Christ is walking among seven churches in Asia Minor in 95 A.D., and he's making an evaluation of each one. Each church receives a report card. And as we've said, these seven churches represent a cross-section of the church in John's day and a cross-section of the church in every era. Every local church falls into one of these categories. There are churches today, like the church at Ephesus, that have left their first love. And there are churches today, like the church at Smyrna, suffering for their faith, and so on. And the two questions that we have to answer are, which church do I fit into, and what am I going to do with the counsel that Jesus Christ gives to me? And so as we go through here, the question we have to answer is, where do I belong in one of these seven churches, and what am I going to do with what Jesus tells me to do? Now today we'll look at the church in Pergamum, and that's Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. And this, we'll find, was the church at Satan's throne. This is the church that lived in a difficult environment. They existed in a stronghold of Satan. And you know what the problem was with this church? It was the problem that every church has that lives near Satan's throne. And it can be summed up in one word, and that word is compromise. And the besetting sin in an environment where Satan dwells is compromise. The sin that plagues the church that exists where Satan's throne is, is compromise. And I would have to say today that we live in a society that is enveloped in evil, and it's so easy for us to take the edge off of cutting Christianity. It's so easy for us to lower the standard and make it more palatable for people. It's so easy for us today to compromise with the world. And that's exactly what happened in the church at Pergamum. They flirted with the world, they courted the world, and they found themselves marrying the world. In fact, the name Pergamum, and it's hard to put a meaning on all names, but the name Pergamum comes from a root word that means marriage. And this is the church that married the world. And Christ has some terribly convicting and penetrating things to say to this church and to some of us. Notice how he begins in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. And Christ introduces himself as the one with the sharp two-edged sword. You say, well, what is this sword? Well, we know from Scripture what this sword is. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 17 says, The sword of the Spirit is the word of God. And so the sword here is the word of God. And writing to the church in compromise, Jesus reminds them that there's a standard. God has a standard and it's not to be compromised. He says, I am the one with the two-edged sword. And I think that's rather interesting, that the Word of God has two edges. It has one edge that cuts in salvation, and it has one edge that cuts in judgment. 
It has one edge that will cut the chains of sin away from us, and it has another edge that will cut us in judgment if that's the way we choose. And so we can allow the Word of God as, as His sword to cut and penetrate our hearts and bring about repentance and change, or we can ignore the Word of God and face its cutting edge in judgment. And Jesus introduces Himself to this church as the one who has the two-edged sword. And we can divide His message into four categories. We can see His commendation, His condemnation, His counsel, and His challenge. First of all, we see His commendation in verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell. Now, some of your Bibles may say there, I know your deeds. Uh, That's not in the oldest manuscripts. Uh, It was not in verse 9 either, if your Bible may have had it there. And so we're going to assume that it's not in the text and we won't deal with it. What he says here is, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Christ says, I know where you live. And where do they live? They live where Satan's throne is. You say, well, I thought Satan's throne was in hell. Well, it's not there today. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that Satan is the god of this world. His throne is here. And in 1 John 5.19, it says the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. Satan is in control here. He reigns here. And he has an especially strong influence in certain places in this world. His throne is here, but his real influence is stronger in some places than in other places. When I was in Chicago, we used to go down to Cook County Jail every Monday night and hold Bible studies with the inmates. And it never failed that every time I went down there, I sensed a real oppressive, dark, spiritual realm down there. Now, it may have been the bars that influenced me that way somewhat, but I don't think it was the bars. It was more than the bars. There was a strong, evil influence in that place. And we learn from this passage that although Satan is the god of the world, in certain places he is especially effective. And one of those places was Pergamum. And Christ says, you live where his throne is. Now, Pergamum was about 60 miles northeast of Smyrna. It was about 15 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. It was a culturally advanced city. It had a library of over 200,000 volumes. And that's pretty impressive, long, long before the printing press was invented. They were famous throughout the ancient world for their sculpture. The city was full of ancient shrines, full of temples to pagan gods. The best known was the Temple of Zeus that stood on a hill overlooking the city. Pergamum was known for its commerce. It was particularly known for its paper, parchment. It was known for its great wealth. It was Greek to the core. The underlying philosophy in Pergamum was live and let live. They were notorious for loose living, free living, few limitations. Satan had a stronghold there. And yet, right in the middle of this place of satanic activity sprang up a church. And we know nothing about who started this church or how, but we do know that they were living in a tough environment. They were living in Satan's front yard. They were living where Satan's throne was. And Jesus says, I know 
That's an interesting Greek word. It's the Greek word that means I know experientially. It's the same word he used back in verse 9. Christ is saying, I know experientially where you live. Because Christ knew what it was to live where Satan was. He had lived his life in that atmosphere. He had spent 40 days in the wilderness face to face with Satan. And so Christ says, I know where you live. I know by experience where you live. You're fighting the lion right in the lion's den. You're in an oppressive atmosphere and I know what you're going through. And Christ had some good things to say about this church in the rest of verse 13. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. You're holding fast my name and you did not deny my faith. They were right in the middle of Satan's throne, but they were holding on to Christ's name. They were hanging on to their faith in the Lord Jesus. And even when one of their number was killed, they still remained true. Now this is the only reference we have in Scripture to Antipas. But it's a pretty exciting reference. Because Christ refers to him two ways in this verse. He calls him my witness and he calls him my faithful one. Wouldn't you like to be referred to that way by the Lord Jesus? My witness and my faithful one. You want to be that way? All you have to do is do what Antipas did. Antipas refused to go with the flow. Antipas refused to compromise. He paid the price to follow the Lord Jesus. And he was, as, the, as Christ said in verse 10, he was faithful unto death. He died for his faith in the Lord Jesus. And he received, as Christ promised in verse 10, that crown of life. And when he was killed and when this threat of death was coming down on the church at Pergamum, they didn't escape, they didn't flee, they didn't quit, they didn't deny the faith, they held fast to the name of Christ. And the Lord Jesus commends them for that. Now there are some of you here this morning who may work in what you consider a tough environment. And you may live in what you consider to be a difficult neighborhood and you may go to school in what you consider to be an oppressive atmosphere. And it may appear that Satan has a stronghold there. But we have been promised victory even in Satan's kingdom. And Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church, and what? And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And here's the church that lived in the pus pocket of ancient Asia Minor with satanic oppression all around them and they held fast and they didn't deny the faith. And Christ says, I know about that and it's good. Notice the first word in verse 14. Verse 13, he says, I know about that and it's good, but... But I have a few things against you. And here comes the second point in the outline, and that is the condemnation. And Christ has a twofold condemnation against this church. Number one is in verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam. And the second thing is in verse 15. Thus you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. He says, I have a couple things against you. 
Number one, you have people there that hold the teaching of Balaam. And number two, you have some people there who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, I'd like you to notice a couple things about that. Number one, he's not talking to all of them. He's talking to some of them. He says there are some there that are holding. Most of the church was holding to the name of Christ. And most of the church was holding to the faith. But he says you've got some there that are holding to these two teachings. And then secondly, I'd like you to notice that when Christ addresses the subject of compromise, he deals with their teaching. He deals with what it is that they're buying with their brains. Because whatever you buy with your mind is what you will eventually produce with your actions. And when you believe something, and when you buy into a teaching, it will produce something in your life. And so as Christ addresses compromise, he doesn't deal initially with the details, he deals first of all with the kind of teaching that they're buying into. Because what we buy into is what we will produce in our lives. And he mentions two problems. First of all, he mentions the teaching of Balaam in verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Now, what did Balaam teach Balak to do to Israel? Well, to get that background, you'll have to go back and read Numbers chapters 22, 23, 24, and 25. In fact, you can read the rest of Numbers, really, to get the context. But what happened there, Balak was the king of Moab. And Israel was moving toward his land, and he was threatened by Israel. So he decided he needed to do something to stop Israel. And he knew that Israel had God on their side. And so he decided to go and, and uh, buy the services of a prophet. And he went and found Balaam, who was essentially a prophet for hire. And he came to Balaam and he said, I'll give you so much money if you'll come and curse Israel. And Balaam said, oh, I could never do that. I couldn't curse Israel. And then he came back again with more money and Balaam said, well, maybe, you know, maybe I could try. And uh, so he, he, he sort of, if the money was right, he, he would do it. And so he came out to, to curse Israel. And if you read the account, God stopped him three times. And the third time, his donkey actually turned around and spoke to him. Uh, and many have commented that his donkey was a better prophet than he was. Uh, but he was stopped three times. And, and then finally he went three times. And three times he tried to curse Israel. And every time, instead of cursing coming out of his mouth, blessing came out of his mouth. So Balak's standing there, waiting for the curse, and out from his mouth comes blessing on Israel three straight times. When Balaam realized he couldn't curse Israel, he decided rather to corrupt Israel. And so he turned to Balak and he said, Balak, if you want to get to Israel, here's what you need to do. You need to send down your Moabite women and have them infiltrate the camp of Israel and flirt with the men in Israel and have them to intermarry with your Moabite women. And once they intermarry with your women, then they will buy into your gods and they will buy into your morality. And that's exactly what Balak did. And you can read about it in Numbers chapter 25 because the men of Israel intermarried with the Moabites and they compromised. 
And so what is the teaching of Balaam? It's the teaching of compromise. Flirt with the world, court the world, marry the world, just compromise in some little things, and pretty soon you will compromise in bigger things. And that's really the effective ploy of Satan today against the church. Outright persecution just purifies the church. That was true in Smyrna. He persecuted the church and it just got better. But when Satan leads us to compromise, that's when he's effective. And a church is not destroyed by persecution. It only grows by persecution. A church is destroyed when its members get involved in the world and erase the distinction and compromise. There's a Russian parable about a hunter who went hunting and he came, he was hunting, been hunting for a while and he came out into a clearing and out of the woods on the other side of the clearing came a bear and they both kind of startled each other and the, and the hunter raised his gun and he was just about to fire and the bear said, whoa, wait, wait a minute, whoa, stop. Don't get, don't get alarmed, don't shoot. Uh, maybe we can reason this thing out. He said, well, to the hunter, he said, well, what is it you're really after today? He said, well, I'm out here after a fur coat. And the bear said, well, that's reasonable, that's understandable. He said, in fact, I'm just out here looking for a full stomach. Maybe we can compromise. And they sat down for a while and talked about it, and after a while, the bear walked away alone. He had his full stomach, and the hunter had his fur coat. Compromise. That was the teaching of Balaam. And some at Pergamum were falling into it. And there were two areas that they were compromising in. If you notice the end of verse 14, he says, they were eating things sacrificed to idols, that was idolatry, and they were committing acts of immorality. So it was idolatry and immorality. Idolatry, they were eating things sacrificed to idols. And they had all these pagan shrines, and at these pagan shrines they would offer up offerings to their gods. And oftentimes they didn't offer up the entire animal, they would just offer up a part of the animal, maybe the lips, the hooves, and so forth. And then they would be left with this, the rest of this carcass, and they didn't have refrigeration in that day, so they would take it home, and they would have a barbecue and invite all the neighbors over. Well, the question was, what were the Israelites to do? in that situation. And when we come to the New Testament, what's the Christian to do in that situation? But for the Israelite, he was to stay away from that. But if his neighbor had a barbecue and he said, well, you know, meat is meat. I'll just go eat a little meat. He compromised a little bit and he ate the meat. And then the next thing we knew, he was going to the pagan temple. And then a little later, he's maybe just taking a little pinch of incense and throwing it on the altar. And the next thing we know, he's bowing down to the gods. He compromises. And so he picks this small thing. It's just eating the meat initially, but then it's step after step. It's a little thing that he compromises in first, and then pretty soon he's compromising in the big thing, idolatry. And then there's a second area mentions, and that's immorality. And in the Greek society, they were openly involved in homosexuality and immorality and affairs outside of marriage. It was a common thing. And it was easy for those at Pergamum to say, well, you know, we live in a loose society. And we live in a society, everybody's doing it. So, you know, I'm still better off than everybody else in my society, even though I am compromising a little bit. And that was their thinking. And you may find yourself saying, 
you know, everybody in our office does this. And you should see what the rest of the faculty does. And, and you should see what the other people are doing. And pretty soon we find ourselves saying, I can't be expected to have biblical standards in this world. That's the teaching of Balaam. Because that's exactly what was happening at Pergamum. They were intermingling with the world. They were courting the world. They were flirting with the world. And pretty soon they were adopting their philosophy. And pretty soon they were worshiping their idols. And they were following their practices. There's a second teaching that he identifies. And that he condemns. And that's in verse 15. That's the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Verse 15. Thus you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And we talked about them earlier back in verse 6. The, the word comes from two Greek words, Nike, which means conquer, and laos, or laity, which means people, common people. And this is the rift between clergy and laity, those who conquer the laity. And this is really a compromise as well, because that's the way of the world. Jesus said, those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be the slave of all. Jesus says in the world, they exercise authority, they lord it over others, they conquer others. But if you're going to be one of my leaders, you've got to exercise authority servanthood and so we see the church at Pergamum compromising they were looking at the world and they were saying well you know it works out there it works in business let's try it in the church and they were compromising those things we find a perfect example of that in 3rd John which we recently went through in verse 9 it talks about Diotrephes who loves to be first among them He's in the church and he loves to be first. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be a leader in the church, you better love to be last. You better love to be the servant of all because that's the way you become first in my kingdom. The teaching of the Nicolaitans. Or verse 6 of this chapter says the Ephesian church hated it. It says God hated it. But those in Pergamum were saying, hey, it works in the world. We'll try it in the church. And so the teaching of Balaam was compromise with the world's morals. The teaching of the Nicolaitans was compromise with the world's methods. Compromise. We'll compromise with their morals. We'll compromise with their methods. Compromise. It's such a subtle thing. It's such a quiet thing. It's so unoffensive. It's so diplomatic. Listen to this quote. This is Jeb Stuart Magruder presidential aide during the Nixon White House scandal, he said this, we had conned ourselves into thinking that we weren't doing anything really wrong, and by the time we were doing things that were illegal, we had lost control. We had gone from poor ethical behavior into illegal activities without even realizing it. Isn't that the way compromise works? It's so subtle until it's too late. I wonder this morning if there are some sitting here who are compromising with the world. Compromising in your business. Compromising 
in your finances. Compromising maybe in the sensual area of your life, in your thought life. Compromise. Compromise says, oh, it's not really wrong. It's just not the best. You know what Jesus says? Look at verse 16. There's His counsel. Repent. Compromise says, it's not really that bad. You live in a world that's a lot worse than you are. Jesus says, repent. Repent of what? Repent from involving yourself with the world. Repent from your compromise. Repent from your flirting and courting the world. Repent from seeking those things that the world dangles in front of us. Repent. Change your mind. Change your heart. Change your action. Turn around. Repent. In our family, we've gone through some repentance in the last ten days. And uh, it's been a very exciting thing to see God heal some things in our lives. And we spent some time in some real introspection looking at some areas of our lives where we are flirting with the world and where idolatry has come in and where immorality has come in. Not in a serious sense, but in a flirting sense. And it's compromise. And such a refreshing thing to repent, to really come to the Lord and say, I don't want to go this way anymore. I want to turn around, even from those things that some Christians don't even consider to be sins. I want to turn away from those things. And I want to walk with you. Um, I was reading the book of Acts this week, and uh, there was a phrase that hit me in the book of Acts. And uh, I'll just share it with you. It's Acts chapter 5, verse 31. You don't have to look it up. But he says, "He, He is the one whom God exalted to His right hand as a prince and a savior, to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And that phrase jumped out at me. He granted repentance to Israel. Repentance is something that God offers. It's a privilege. Repentance is. Some people never repent. They get involved in sin and they continue in sin. They don't know how to turn around and they suffer the consequences of that. The Christian has the privilege of repenting, of turning around. And repenting is a beautiful thing. In fact, in chapter 3 of Acts, which I read right before that, it was in verse 19, he says, Repent therefore and return that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Isn't that a great promise? Repent so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. It's a beautiful thing to repent before the Lord. When you acknowledge something in your life that's wrong, an area in my life where I've been compromising, and I repent of that, it opens the doors, it opens the windows of heaven, if you like, for God to bring times of refreshing into my life. And so as as Christ writes to this church at Pergamum, which had compromised with the world, his counsel is, I want you to repent. And if you'll notice verse 16, Christ is serious about this. He says, repent therefore or else. He's serious about repentance in the life of Christians. Repent or else. I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword 
of my mouth. You know what happens to the believer or the church that courts the world and continues in that pattern without repenting? Christ says, I'm going to come to them and I'm going to fight against them with the sword. And you get the idea that Jesus is serious about this area of compromising with the world. In fact, if you go back to the analogy in Numbers chapter 25, as a result of the compromise there with the teaching of Balaam, 24,000 Israelites were killed with the sword. They went out through the camp and they killed the Israelites with the sword. And Jesus says in the same way, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to bring the sword. Fourthly, we have the challenge. And that's in verse 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Do you hear the Spirit speaking to you today? In our loose society, are you compromising? In the area of idolatry, is your worship going somewhere besides the Lord Jesus Christ? Or in the area of immorality, are your thoughts honoring in that area? Are we compromising? Are we flirting with the world around us? Christ says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you hear the Spirit of God speaking to you today, you need to respond to the counsel of the Lord Jesus, and that is, you need to repent. You need to allow the convicting edge of that sword to cut you today and bring repentance rather than face that cutting edge of judgment in the future. And then he closes with an incentive at the end of verse 17. He says, To him who overcomes... To him I will give some of the hidden manna. Hidden manna. Manna was the bread that came out out of heaven in the Old Testament, in the wilderness. The way God nourished his people. The food that came from heaven. And he's saying, to you who overcome, I will give you food from heaven. I'll give you nourishment from myself. And he says it's hidden manna. It's manna... It's nourishment that this world doesn't know anything about. I'll give it to you. And you know what the Lord does for us? When we come to a point of really repenting and of acknowledging that we have been flirting with the world and we turn around in repentance, He takes this book and He opens up this book that has become kind of dull to us and He feeds us out of this book. He gives us refreshment and nourishment out of this book. And that's an exciting truth. He says, if you repent, I'll give you some of the hidden manna. I'll nourish you out of this book. I'll come to you and I'll fellowship with you in a way that's fresher than you've ever known because of that willingness to repent and come back to Him in dedication to Him alone. And then he has a second promise at the end of verse 17. He says, I'll give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. I'll give him a white stone. What's the white stone? Well, in culture back then, in the courtrooms, they used white and black stones to acknowledge whether a person was guilty or innocent. Innocent, And they would, they would uh, put out a black stone to say he's guilty, or they would put out a white stone to say he's innocent. And that may be what he's talking about here. He's saying, I'll give you a white stone, saying you're acquitted, you're innocent of the charges. That may be what he's talking about. There are others who think he's talking here about, when he talks about a white stone, about a diamond. Which I kind of like that idea, because a diamond 
means more in our society today. And a diamond is sort of a sign of favor. And Christ is saying, if you'll stop flirting with the world and courting the world, I'll give you a diamond. I'll give you that sign of my favor with you. And what I like about it most, I think, is that it's personal at the end of verse 17. He says, I'll put a new name on it, which no one knows but he who receives it. Isn't that exciting? The Lord says, if you'll come to me in repentance, I'll give you a diamond and I'll put a name on it that nobody will know but me and you. That's personal. You have a name that you use on your wife that you don't use on anybody else? It's kind of a name that you might even be embarrassed to use in public. It's that special, intimate kind of fellowship that he's talking about here. He's saying, we'll have a name that, that we'll share intimately in our fellowship with each other. And so again, he's talking about what he's really promising us is that fellowship with himself. Are you flirting with the world? Are you courting the world? Are you compromising? Have you married the world? Are you wed with the world as a Christian? Christ says to you today, repent, and I'll give you hidden manna, that refreshing fellowship today, and I'll give you a white stone, that intimate fellowship tomorrow. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you today for your word. And we thank you for this passage of Scripture which speaks to us where we're at. And Lord, we confess to you that oftentimes we try to make the excuse that we live in a difficult society. And it's so hard to be obedient. And yet, Lord, we acknowledge as we read about this letter to the church at Pergamum that you know what it's like to live where Satan's throne is. And even in a tough environment, you still hate compromise. And Lord, I pray that you would just use your two-edged sword to cut our hearts today and bring us to the point of repentance. That we might truly and really enjoy that hidden manna that only you can provide, that real fulfillment in life that only you can provide, and that we might enjoy that intimate fellowship, a new name that will go on forever. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.